All right, let's read Habakkuk. So it's only three chapters long, but that's more than you usually get in church, which is kind of funny, isn't it? We spend more time talking about what it says than reading what it says. So let's just read this, and then, then I'll talk about what it says. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded if it wasn't clear this is now God's response. God says, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might, whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? This is Habakkuk again speaking. We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. 
because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting waves. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, and it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. 
You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Lord God, we stand in awe of everything that your word teaches us about you. That the eternal mountains scatter at the sound of your voice. That you turn the arrows of the wicked back upon their own head. That in you we can rejoice though the vine may fail and the flocks be cut off from the fold. God, I pray that you would take these words and encourage our hearts with them this morning, that you would grow us in your likeness, Lord, and that in everything in our church, through the words proclaimed now and in our worship and in our hearts from day to day, that your will Father would be done. Amen. If God is good, then why does evil prevail? If God is good and God is righteous and He is loving and He's just and He's powerful and He's sovereign, then why is there so much evil in the world everywhere you turn and look? So we're in this series called The Neglected Prophets. We're making our way through the minor prophets. We're calling them The Neglected Prophets because I don't know the last time you read Habakkuk, but it's not too often that people generally do. These are some of the least read books in our Bibles. And today, obviously, we've come to Habakkuk. We're making progress. And the central theme of this book, I think, is the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Now, I need you to buckle up and put your thinking caps on today because the book of Habakkuk, I think, is the most philosophical of all of the minor prophets. As if thinking about theology it was not challenging enough, Habakkuk adds to the difficulty by incorporating some philosophical thought into his book. He really engages in what we might call a divine dialectic, which is just a fancy philosophical way of saying a conversation. And it's a conversation recorded between Habakkuk, the prophet, and Yahweh, the one true God. And the subject of this discussion is the nature of God in light of the existence of evil. Specifically, if God is good and God hates evil, and if God is all-powerful and can bring an end to evil, then why is there so much evil? 
There was a brilliant philosopher who once worked at the University of Chicago and he gave lectures all over and he had a designated limo driver who would take him around to all these lectures that he gave. And after a while, the the limo driver got so accustomed to hearing the philosopher give his lecture that he, uh, he leaned back one night and he said, hey, prof, I've heard you give this thing so many times. I got an idea. How about you take a night off and you just sit in the back and listen and I give the lecture. And the professor was like, you know what? It's been a while since I've had a night to just kick back and relax. Why don't we give this a try? So they switched outfits, they switched places, and the professor pretends to be the driver, and the driver pretends to be the professor. And they get to the lecture hall for his lecture that evening, and the limo driver, pretending to be the professor, he gets out and he gets up on stage and he delivers this lecture flawlessly, right? And then in an unexpected turn of events, the host of the lecture opens the room up for questions and answers. And the first person to run to the mic is another brilliant philosopher, top in his field. And he takes the mic and he says, Professor, I can tell that you are incredibly brilliant. Thank you for that elucidating lecture. I'm wondering if you can help me, though. I have just one question that plagues my mind. And my question is, if God is good and all-powerful, then why does evil exist? And the limo driver was totally unfazed. He, he looks at the man and he replies, you know what, in all my years of teaching, I have never been asked such a stupid question. <laughs> in fact, that question is so stupid and so easy to answer that I'm going to have my limo driver answer it for you. <laughs> but in fact, it's not a stupid question. And the answer is not an easy answer, but the Bible does provide us with a few answers. And so let's consider the philosopher prophet Habakkuk, and let's see what God's Word says. Before we jump into that, a little bit of the background like I like to do with the prophets. Uh, for simplicity, I'm, gonna de- I'm, gonna, I'm going to date Habakkuk to about 600 BC, and the important thing to understand here is In the sequence of events, where does Habakkuk lie? He's writing, after the destruction of the ten tribes of northern Israel, he's writing after the fall of Assyria, that great enemy of Israel, and after the rise of the nation of Babylon. But he's writing before the fall of Jerusalem. Actually, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, is a series of woes to the Chaldeans, who are essentially the Babylonians who will destroy Jerusalem and take the Jews into captivity. So a good deal of this book is dealing with the rise of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, this wicked pagan empire that oppressed the Jews, but was also used by God as a tool to accomplish some of his purposes. Now, we don't know too much about Habakkuk except that he was a prophet, which the book tells us he was probably involved in some kind of uh, temple work with worship in the temple of the Jews because he uses some technical liturgical language. And his name Habakkuk, it's derived from the Hebrew word havak, and it means to grasp or to cling to, to embrace And it may sound a little cheesy, but I really do think it's fair to say that the writing of Habakkuk is actually God's embrace of his people in a difficult time in their history. Habakkuk is a bit like a divine hug from Yahweh 
to the people that he loves. In the midst of their hardship, in the midst of their really intense questions about the goodness of God and the existence of evil, God sends them this message from Habakkuk that God is grasping his people. God is holding on to them. Maybe the only thing you'll remember this morning is I think I would call Habakkuk, Habakkuk the hugging prophet. Instead of Jeremiah the weeping prophet, here we get a prophet who speaks of God's embrace. That would be my unofficial title for this book. I'm sure you won't find it in the next edition of your Bible. Well, the outline of Habakkuk gets us to the meat of his writing, so let's go through kind of an outline. It begins with a couple questions in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Maybe you picked up on those. The questions are, how long will you wait, God, and why do you let this evil continue? How long and why will you let evil people continue to get away with evil? And God gives an answer in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, where essentially he says, not much longer, Habakkuk, very soon your faith will be rewarded. Watch and be amazed, because I'm going to do something so great, you wouldn't even believe it if I told you. And I think this really isn't so much a direct answer to Habakkuk's questions as much as it is just a wonderful promise from God. It's a promise that Habakkuk has not placed his faith in God in vain. Whatever he may see with his eyes, whatever experiences he may be in the thick of, the fact remains, God is at work. Everything is going according to plan. Which, if that sounds familiar, it's because that has been a repeated theme as we've gone through the Minor Prophets. God, in this instance, is raising up the Chaldeans, the nation of Babylon, to use as his tool to destroy those who do violence and engage in wickedness. How long and why? Well, Habakkuk, just watch and be amazed. So that's the first set of question and answer, the first dialogue. But the first dialogue, the first question, and God's answer only raises another question in the mind of Habakkuk which we find in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And his second question is also incredibly difficult. The question the prophet asks is, God, how can you use evil to accomplish your will? Let's look at those verses, uh, 12 and 13. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God, you are so pure, you cannot tolerate evil, yet you use evil to punish the wicked? I think another way of, of, of framing this question is to say, God, why is your character so inconsistent with your creation? Why are you good, God, but everything that you have made is so messed up? Then God answers Habakkuk in chapter 2, 
verses 2 through 5, and we can sum it up like this. First, God says to Habakkuk, again, wait, Habakkuk. You're going to get a full answer. And then in verse 4, God also says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, here's what I want you to understand about Habakkuk's question and God's answer. Habakkuk asks the question, in essence, God, why is your character so inconsistent with what I see in creation? But God's answer reframes the question by redirecting it towards the soul of the wicked and arrogant man. And so God's answer then is this, Habakkuk, my creation is not inconsistent with my character. Just wait and you will see, you will see. But the real problem, Habakkuk, is that the wickedness of man is inconsistent with my character and my creation. Habakkuk, I'm not the problem, God says. Instead, it is the sin and evil of men that have twisted and distorted what God made perfect. Man, in his arrogance, has brought to ruin what God made perfect. And as if that was not bad enough, then man turns around and puts God to the question as to why everything is this bad. What utter hubris. What absurd pride. And see, the problem of evil is not a problem with the nature of God. God's perfections remain unstained by the ruin of his creation. Instead, the problem of evil is a problem with the fallen nature of man, who in his pride created this misery and this ruin that we see around us, and then wants to blame God for it. Man who through his ongoing pride and rebellion perpetuates sin and evil in offense against God, while God very graciously and very patiently tolerates that behavior and waits for man to wake up to the ridiculousness of his evil and come back to God, escape that misery, and find redemption. And so God goes on in Habakkuk to declare a series of woes upon the evil Babylonians who represent, I think they represent, this pride, this arrogance among man. And those woes run from chapter 2, verse 6 through 20, ending in this scene where all the earth is just silenced before God. In the presence of God, the creature ends up silenced. And I love that section because there's also a little bit of humor here. God actually just makes fun of idols. And then he silences the world. There's a beautiful poetic irony here because in, in the first bit of this, the idols are silenced, before, or they are silent in verses 18 through 20. They say nothing. God actually has the kindness to respond to the questions brought to him, whereas the idols cannot open their mouths. And then things turn around and the creature bringing the question is brought to silence before the God who can speak. And then chapter 3, Habakkuk ends with this prayer of exaltation, giving God praise for his sovereign power. 
And that prayer finishes with a serious surrender to God where Habakkuk, by faith, just entrusts himself into the hands of God despite his present circumstances. So with that structure in mind, let's ponder a couple of the big ideas here, okay? First, I want to point out that Habakkuk wrestles with God and he is not rebuked for it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? In the midst of his circumstances, Habakkuk questions the goodness of God and the power of God. And I just want to point out that in the midst of difficult experiences, that's actually okay. Like it's an astounding thing that our God doesn't just give us the book of Habakkuk that says, shut up, you don't know anything. No, he lets Habakkuk wrestle and he gives answers. And so I want you to know, it's okay to wrestle with God when pain and suffering come into your life. When the prevalence of evil and the hiddenness of God leave you wondering and produce pain in your heart. But I also want you to understand that Doubt itself is not a virtue. Doubt itself is not a virtue. So we must wrestle through those doubts back to what Habakkuk concludes, which is that he can have great confidence in God. See, there are some pockets of corrupted Christianity. I use quotes because I don't think it's Christianity. But there are some pockets of corrupted Christianity where people claim, you know, it is arrogant and rude to be so certain about what the Bible says. And so the best thing to do is just question and doubt. We can't really be certain. And so let's be humble and embrace our uncertainty. In liberal Christianity, which is not Christianity, doubt is a virtue and certainty is a sin. But I want you to understand that as much as it is okay to wrestle with God and ask him hard questions, doubting God is not a virtue. And while it is wise to be unsure of ourselves, it is never wise to be unsure of God. Look at Jesus. We never see him embrace uncertainty as a form of virtue, a form of godliness. Yes, seasonal doubt through times of difficulty, that's human and that's understandable. And lots of people in Scripture wrestle with God. But persistent doubt is really just the sin of unbelief. That's what persistent doubt is. And I want you to see an important trait of the great heroes of our faith, Moses, Abraham, Job, David, and of course Jesus, at their best These heroes never let the feelings of any difficult moment override what they know in their hearts to be certain about God. Habakkuk is feeling discouraged, but in the end he prays a prayer of praise, saying, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, Though the produce fail and the flock be cut off, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. 
It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, the Christian life is not dictated by what we feel. The Christian life rightly lived is a life unshakably grounded on what we know to be true. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to feel, okay? Feelings are not bad. Husbands, don't go home and tell your wives, you know, Grady vindicated 20 years of fighting in our marriage by telling you that you shouldn't feel things. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when we are discouraged or defeated, when we are depressed or in despair, when our hearts feel cast down, we must fight to take what we feel and conquer it with what we know God's Word tells us. Jesus does not always feel close, but he promises that he will be with us to the end of the age. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Sin does not always feel wrong, but we know that it leads to destruction and death. The Christian life does not always feel warm and fuzzy, but we know there is no treasure greater than Jesus Christ. The fight to obtain holiness does not always feel profitable, but we know that glory waits for us. It does not always feel like God is good and all-powerful, but we rest on this rock of what Scripture teaches us, what we know to be true, that God is sovereign and God loves us. And everything that he does is for our good. Jesus was in agony as he prayed in the garden before he went to the cross. And after he sweat these great drops of sweat from being so anxious, feeling this despairing burden that was before him, the cross, then when he was done with that prayer, he entrusted himself into the hands of God. Father, your will be done, knowing that his father loved him and that his father was powerful to overcome whatever might befall him. Friends, wrestle with God. And after he has worn you out and he has pinned you down and he has blessed you with a limp, then rest in the dust in what you know to be true. And stand up again and limp hard after Jesus. Knowing in your heart of hearts, God is good and he's powerful, and he loves you. And at the end of all of these things, you will see the goodness of God, and it will be more than worth it. Now, I want to try and deal with the theme of evil, with the problem of evil, and the argument that I'm going to give you. It's just one. There are many, but I'm going to give you one. And it is difficult to wrap your minds around this. So I want to invite you to do some hard work. And tragically, um, in our culture, we are so caught up in amusement and entertainment that we tend to avoid the hard work of thinking. But I want to invite you into that. And I can, I can tell by some of your faces, you're like, oh no, I've not had enough coffee for this yet. 
If you need to stand up and do some jumping jacks, we won't, we won't judge you for that. But I want to invite you into this hard work, okay? The problem of evil can be expressed like this. God cannot be good and all-powerful because if he was good and all-powerful, then evil would not exist. You ever heard something along those lines before? Now, would you agree with me that that statement is a statement of unbelief? God cannot be good and all-powerful and evil exist because if he was good and all-powerful, he would make evil not exist. And I want to claim that that is a statement of great unbelief. We might say it like this, I cannot believe in God because evil exists. And so let's consider for a second what evil is. The core of evil is unbelief. So do you begin to see what's materializing here? Adam and Eve, they did not believe that God's commandment was good and right, and their unbelief brought humanity to ruin. So think about this statement. I cannot believe God, I cannot believe in God, because evil exists. Do you see what that statement is? That statement is a statement of unbelief. And if unbelief is evil and you make a statement of unbelief, what have you done? You have done a great evil. We might reframe the statement like this. I cannot believe in God because I have unbelief. And you hear the absurdity now of the statement. In other words, shaking your fist at God for the existence of evil is itself an act of unbelief. And by that very action, you show yourself to be a doer of evil. So it's not God who's done evil, but you have given birth to evil in your own heart by questioning the goodness or the sovereignty of God. By complaining about the existence of evil, you end up disbelieving in the goodness of God. So that by your very act of unbelief, you show yourself to be the origin of evil, since evil is by definition unbelief. It's this unbelief and pride that brings ruin to those who do evil in chapter 1 verses 5 through 11. They disbelieve that God will judge them for their acts of wickedness. They disbelieve that God is righteous and powerful, and their unbelief leads them to destruction. Let me say it another way, okay? The suckiness of my life leads me to believe that something is wrong with the world. Ever felt that? My natural inclination then is to find someone to blame for the suckiness of my life. And if I blame God, then I'm guilty of unbelief which is the most wicked of evils, and my unbelief shows that I am to blame for the suckiness of my life. The only escape from this evil then is to repent, to fall on my face before this powerful and holy God and say something like, I believe, help my unbelief. And then when he forgives me, I must follow him where he leads me so that I might grow in belief as I see that what he teaches is good 
And I trust in full faith that where his goodness and his power will take me is exactly where he wants me. So listen, wrestle with God, even bring to him your questions and your doubts. And when you've done that sufficiently, then shut your mouth and be silent before God. And in that silence, direct your heart to remember what you know is true. That though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, though the produce fail and the flock be cut off, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation. Do not despair at the world so that your heart is deceived into feeling disbelief. Instead, remember what you know to be true and let your heart rejoice in faith. Trust in God regardless of what you see or what you feel. Now, you might reply, you know what, Grady, that is easy for you to say with your little notes up there and your little philosophical formula about disbelief. But when evil seems to be so victorious all around me, And the wicked seem to prosper. When suffering comes into my life and it brings heartache and ruin, how can I actually rejoice in faith? And that's a fair question. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Just a little thing here. It says of God, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. And I want to plant this truth in your heart so that you can remember this as well in the midst of your difficulties, so that you can rest on what you know. This right here is why we can rejoice in faith even when wickedness and evil seem to prevail all around us. Because in the hands of an all-powerful God, even the evil of mankind becomes a tool for his glory, a tool for his purposes. The evil of man does not thwart the purposes of God. Instead, God repurposes man's evil to perfectly accomplish everything that he intends. Not too long ago, my son Aiden, I think it was even maybe this last week or maybe the week before, my son Aiden was asking me all kinds of questions about his various get-rich-quick schemes. He's begun to understand the power of money, right? That money is this incredible resource that helps you get what you want. And he was asking me ways about how he could make a quick buck. And I explained to him there basically are no ways to get rich quick, that instead diligence and prudence and temperance are the most certain ways to grow in wealth. But I ended up explaining this through a discussion of alchemy. You know what alchemy is? It was this medieval pseudoscience where people attempted to take a common worthless material, specifically lead, and with chemical compounds or even magic incantations turn lead into gold, right? Now, needless to say, alchemy is impossible. You cannot turn lead into gold without completely altering its elemental atomic makeup using something maybe like fusion. Alchemy is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, And God is the great moral alchemist. 
Do you see what I'm getting at? We would probably look at something like evil and we would say to ourselves, there is no way something good can come from this. There is no way to take lead and make it gold and there is no way something good can come from this evil. Drug addiction, the sexual exploitation of children, murder, depression, divorce, injustice, oppression, man's rebellion against God, pride and arrogance in all of its forms, racism, violence, and pain. These are all great evils that God despises and they should never have come into existence. And one day they will cease to exist. But God in His sovereign power, God in His goodness, He takes these evils and through an incomprehensible act of His love and His grace, He works His moral alchemy and turns evil into spiritual gold for His purposes. He redirects the arrows of wickedness back on those who shot them, and he turns the curses into blessings. The reprehensible evil of mankind, God works that for our good. God never does evil himself. He abhors evil. God never approves evil. He is not complicit in evil. He never commands evil. And his Power and authority and goodness are such that one day he will fully and finally crush evil in eternity. But his power and goodness are also such that in this age of humanity's sinfulness, God is working every act of evil for our good and for his glory. Do you sincerely believe that? So we might offer as one answer to the question, why does a good God allow evil to exist? We might offer as one answer to that question, he allows evil to exist so that we would know his love and his power as he takes every act of evil and works it for our good and for his glory. How great is our God? Not only that he can defeat evil, but that he can actually turn evil into good. So we rejoice in faith. It's a faith that does not rely merely on our feelings because feelings are fickle when life gets difficult. But we rejoice in faith because of what we know to be true, which is why the Apostle Paul prays for the church in Ephesus that they might know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. He does not pray that they might feel the love of God, which surpasses knowledge, but that they would know with certainty the love of God. So as we conclude, I just want to say that we, we most of all, are without excuse. We most of all should be quick to move from doubt to faith. We most of all should be able to resist the temptation to question God when we suffer under evil. Habakkuk ends his book with this prayer of faith that whatever his circumstances, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the produce fail and the flock be cut off, Habakkuk will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of his salvation. 
And Habakkuk prayed that prayer of faith without seeing the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? But we have seen the power of God to take evil and to repurpose it. To repurpose it for his glory and for our good. Because we can look back at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. And in the cross, we get to gaze on the victory of God when he took the arrows of his enemies and turned them back upon their own heads. And the curse became a blessing. Where the greatest act of evil became God's tool for our salvation. Evil exists and it leads us to wrestle with God through pain and through suffering. But after that wrestling, we limp on in faith, believing what we know to be true. We embrace the hope of the cross. We clasp onto it like Habakkuk, like his name suggests. We embrace the cross. We grasp onto it. This truth that if God can work the death of Christ Jesus for our good and for his glory, then no evil, no wickedness is beyond his power to rework, repurpose evil for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to know these truths. God, I pray that we would feel them too. But I pray that when our feelings are fickle, like Habakkuk's name suggests, that we would embrace and cling to and grasp this truth, the truth of your power, the truth of your goodness. I pray that we would not be tempted with unbelief, but instead, whatever our circumstances might be, that like Habakkuk says at the end of his writing, that we would instead rejoice in the power of our God, rejoice in the goodness of our God, rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen.